We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned in to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, from Lutri to Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station. So head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana. We're meeting here on Lutwita, but since we are a podcast, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here in the studio, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined today by my co-host and co-manager of the show, Anna Abella. And we've got a very exciting mini-series coming for you, so I'm going to hand over to Anna to explain what we have coming up. Thanks, Ollie. So this is our first episode in the Eureka Prize mini-series. So that's what I call science was very proud to be awarded Australian Museum's Eureka Prize for STEM inclusion this year. Um, And Ollie and I attended the awards ceremony and we got to meet so many fantastic scientists and communicators and journalists. And we have one of those legends in science journalism and broadcasting joining us now. So Robin Williams might be best known for presenting ABC Radio National Science Show and Razor, but he has a long list of accolades, including being the founder of the Eureka Prize. So it's very special to have him here with us today. Hi, Robin. Hello, thank you. So we're delighted you could join us today. Um, and like we said, you've had an incredible career. When did this career first start? It's hard to say because I found myself often being distracted because it was the 60s. And in 1958, one of the women I know, she said, I'm going along tomorrow to a movie, and I said, do you mean to the cinema? She said, no, we're shooting a film, and we've got to be in the audience. I said, can I come? And she said, yes, and so I managed to go there. And so that was my first time actually on a set, and when I came back after having a time in Australia, I hitchhiked from North Sydney Station back to Piccadilly after two years being in Australia, um, I went to university, and while at university, I actually arranged to have two agents and they gave me one or two gigs a week for five years. So I would often be in something like Monty Python or The Goodies and I was a stand-in for Tom Jones for three months for his shows both in America and in Britain and on it went and this was just while I was doing my, my degree. In fact, when Tom was singing some amazing powerful song or rehearsing it more likely with uh, Sonny and Cher or someone like that, um, I'd be in the audience chairs revising botany, (laughs) 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 you know, the ancient history of ferns. And um, so when I actually graduated from university, a friend of mine came from Australia and he said, you're going to um, grow up shortly, you're going to be 28 and you'll have a degree what are you going to do next and I said well we we don't plan these days we're all hippies we just hang about and have a wonderful time he said that will stop very soon get some sort of career in the I said well we're going back to Australia he said ah well what you need to do is to go to see Humphrey Fisher 
He was the son of the person who crowned the Queen, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I said, oh. So I wrote to Humphrey Fisher, and he wrote back. They did that in those days and said, come and see me when you're in Australia. So I turned up, and he was a bit loose, you know, a bit so casual. He said, oh, well, you've got no experience. You can't be a broadcaster. Um, well, come back in 10 years when you've done something. And I got really cross. And so he sent me to his biggest enemy across the harbour, who was the head of um, radio science. And he just happened to have a vacancy because at that stage, in 1972, I'm sure you both remember this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We yes. were definitely there. In April 1972, Apollo 16 was taking off and then just needed a gopher. And I said, I can be a gopher, I can go fetch. But the thing is, that having been on television in Britain, doing all these funny things with, with comedy or with Tom Jones, knowing to turn up on time, knowing not to bump into the furniture, knowing not to be ragged or how you're supposed to look, getting to know who the floor manager was and, or who held the power. You know, this was absolutely marvellous training for someone who was shit out. I couldn't sing, I couldn't dance, I couldn't <laughs> act. <laughs> But it was f tremendous to be suddenly in science like that. And um, as soon as I did it, I fell in love again. Oh. I love science, but broadcasting science was just wonderful. Yeah, that's great to hear. And it was scary when you said that when you were 28, you were told you were becoming a grown-up. Because at 29, I am not ready to be told that I am becoming a grown-up yet. So you understand. Yeah, I'm on the cusp <laughs> of, oh, I actually am responsible now. But... Talking about broadcasting science, what difference with particularly with science and STEM is there to broadcasting in general? Well, you've got to understand what you're trying to do. So I had all these different kind of experiences, um, knowing that we had a national audience, but then you have a more focused audience. And I remember talking to, you know, I didn't do much preparation for, there was a, a network which dealt with mainly the country listeners. And I'm saying, oh, they're going to put some sort of observatory on the moon and it's uh, covered in gold foil and um, it'll be there doing this. Robin, why is it covered in gold foil? Silence. And I'm looking at the guy across in the tweed. I'd underestimated him. Most broadcasters and actors and performers are very smart. Never underestimate them. And I said, oh, uh, there's corrosion, atmospheric corrosion. Robin, there's no atmosphere on the moon. Because <laughs> <sighs> normally this day, uh, these days I'd say, oh, look, I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll phone up someone who knows these things and let you know. But nowadays we have a different problem. Because what the programme I've been doing now for 28 and a half years, a science show, is about essentially ideas. Because it's on first time on Saturday and then it's repeated and repeated and then you've got it online. And so when you say, this has just happened, well, it might not have just happened. Mm -hmm. So the idea of topicality. So what we're concentrating on is as if you vaguely know what's topical, but what does it mean? And so we're dealing in ideas, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think this is what you do. This is why you got the prize. Because the ideas behind science, STEM itself, has no limits in terms of being in a box because you've got physics connected to botany, connected to animals and the trees worldwide. They're all connected in all sorts of ways. 
So what you've got to do is try to work out, and I don't know the answer to this, what are young people listening to these days? Well, so you just mentioned that you'd been working for the show for 48 and a half years, which is amazing dedication to one organisation, let alone it must be a career you absolutely love. But given that nowadays you record an episode and, as you say, it's repeated and then goes online and distributed that way, presumably it hasn't always been like that because nowadays people need the content in they can't necessarily tune in at a certain time so how have you found the attitudes towards having information accessible all the time to needing to be present say at 6 p.m on a Wednesday or you you don't get it well we have been making podcasts I think we were the first ones in the ABC to do podcasting way back if I've got a programme that I broadcast 32 years ago, with any luck, you can just dial it up, mm. put the references, there it is. Yeah, it's all, it's all slightly changed, but I try to give priority to being out of the building, in the field, and I've been here in this building, this wonderful place in Hobart, many, many, many times, and interviewed the scientists, and my request when I get in touch with a place like this is hit me with new young people so that I can find out what's going on in their minds and their careers. Mm. And the attitudes towards STEM change so drastically from generation to generation. Even the undergrads that I talk to, their approach to their studies is vastly different to what how I viewed zoology 10 years ago. Um, so stick with us for part two as we hear more about Robin's incredible career. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking to a legend in science journalism. My name is Anna Abella and I'm joined by Ollie Dove along with our expert guest Robin Williams the host of ABC National Science Show and the creator of Occam's Razor and the Eureka Prizes. So, Robin, I'd love to know what's kept you so passionate about science across all of these years. I came to Australia and I couldn't quite recognise the landscape because I was kind of fixed on the European stuff and I sort of saw scrub going on forever and it was quite exciting strolling through mountaintops and suddenly there's a wombat in front of me. Oh, it's bigger than I thought. And that was quite exciting. But the, the turning point came when I was in the Blue Mountains and suddenly two Rosellas, those incredible colours, zoomed past on their way somewhere to do something. And it went click. This is a magical area. Now, what's going on in Australia? Why is there so much good science? And the answer is... I think quite fascinating. Now, imagine you turn up. Okay, 65,000 years ago, people who were the first Australians were here looking at a landscape they'd never come across before. But then the Europeans arrived and described it as a topsy-turvy world. The landscape is totally different. It's so old and its history is phenomenal. And they, the southern sky is different and the creatures, once you've got your eye in, and now I've got my eye in on the plants as well, to some extent also underwater, all this is so new and unexplored in many ways that science is just an open treasure trove. And that's why 
it was a wonderful coincidence that the Brits came across and not only did they plant their hollyhocks and have their, their standard stuff from their front gardens in Kent, but they also had their universities, which had a high standard in terms of the research. And they appointed the professor of physics at Adelaide, a gentleman called William Bragg. He did quite well, and he had a son called Lawrence. And Lawrence grew up in Adelaide, little boy, fell off his bike and broke his arm. Do you know the story at all? I don't know. No, no. Well, William, at this stage, his dad, said, look, I've got this friend called Ersted over here sending letters to me, and he's got these things called x-rays. And I happen to have the gear that he sent across, which just said, let's have a look at your arm. And that was the first x-ray of a broken arm of little Lawrence. And they were so entranced by the experience that they developed something which eventually became x-ray crystallography. Lawrence Bragg, the son, became the youngest person in history to get a scientific Nobel Prize. He did the work when he was 22 and got the prize when he was 25 because he was in the trenches during the First World War. And then he went on to run the Royal Institution and employ in various, I think about six or seven people got Nobel Prizes under him, like Watson and Crick, discovering the shape of DNA. People don't know that in Australia the tradition of fine work in science was at that astounding level. Mm. And it seems to me, okay, I'm trying to reach an audience about science, but science is done by people, and I want them to know about people. If you look at some of the other people involved in science, you find that there was such amazing work being done, for instance, in radio astronomy. Where was radio astronomy invented? Sydney Hobart. Mm. <laughs> On the campus, within 10 minutes' walk from where we're sitting, Grote Reba, mm-hmm. you know, yes. you can see the yeah. apparatus. I'm so glad you mentioned them because we actually had a mini-series that we recorded up there. That's the point. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's all this exciting stuff. Okay, the, the invention of radio astronomy in ter- terms of scientific investigation is some a bit of a yarn. I'll just tell you a tiny bit of a yarn because it illustrates two things, apart from Grote Reba and if you look at uh, Tasmania. But if you look at Dover Heights in Sydney, a whole gang of people came out. There were people who were working in a bit of a lab, a bit of an obs- observation system station really some of the people been working there said we're picking up all these signals from the sky we don't quite know what they are and robert bolton who used to be in the navy was in charge of radar he he started looking in and trying to find out where these signals were coming from and ruby payne scott from the university of sydney was a mathematician genius at maths she was working out what they actually meant in terms of uh, the distance they were coming she had worked out that it it wasn't simply coming from what we now know as a galaxy, which we thought was everything, but coming from gigantic distances. Do you know what happened to Ruby Payne Scott? I don't know. She was fired. Oh. Oh. Because they found out she was married. Oh. (laughs) You weren't weren't allowed to be. Well, they made it, they fudged it as if she wasn't fired. Mm. But she was so young and Mm. such a genius. Robert Bolton, on the other hand, was recognised and was offered a chair at Caltech. And he was offered, and they said, you've made these dishes where you can collect the signals coming from outer space, and we want a couple. (laughs) Could you come and help us design them? And 
have a professorship at the most famous campus almost in America, if not the world. So he did. And he stayed there for a couple of years. And then he said, I'm resigning. Why? I've been offered a job in a cow's paddock <laughs> in New South Wales. Oh, <laughs> that's preposterous. You can't. But he went and he built a dish in a place called Parks. And the question is, who played him in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> Robert Bolton was played by Sam Neill oh. in the movie of the dish. Now, you see, um, this, this is gossip. And I love mm. gossip because <laughs> it is officially part of what science is made of. I, I know some of the names, I know some of the, the action. And this seems to me to be what STEM is about. It tells you about the people. They're not just people in dark rooms going tappy, 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 tappy. They're people with passions and insights and flexibilities. Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't want to talk to them. And that, for me, is what STEM's about because they all can also be examples of all the things that science is, one of the most important is the future. Mm-hmm. You're obviously investigating nature to discover something that hasn't been known or not known that well. And that takes some time and it takes some planning and you've got to build these dishes or as I look around me, some of the most amazing ships which go out to Antarctica, you know, all that takes money and planning and you've got to plan for the future to make your community safe and looking forward in the most productive way. This seems to me what STEM's all about as well, not just doing the equations and doing QED. (laughs) Absolutely. Could not agree with you more. That's what I call science. That's why we want to celebrate the people that are doing the research here in Hobart and Tazians, showing the world the amazing things that they're doing because we won the Eureka Prize for STEM inclusion, which we're so proud about. It was a huge thing in our show's history, if not the hugest of the things. But I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned that you don't just want to hear from people late in their career. You also want to hear from younger scientists. And traditionally, as well as a young woman, I already face difficulties in the scientific world, but 40 years ago, I would have faced more. Do you find things have gotten much better with the appreciation of who is in the workforce and that within science communication, you're able to show a diverse range of people now that you weren't able to or allowed to or could back then? Young women are the Matildas (laughs) in science. Yes, shout out to the Matildas. (laughs) They are. And I can say this, given the timing of our discussion, the Bragg Prizes, the finalists, are all women. And the winners for the last few years have been all women. And when we look at the top ABC science, top five, which we've had any number of years, it's usually one man, four women. And those figures are repeated again and again. I saw in the paper, Sydney Morning Herald, about uh, five days ago of some of the results of the last um, set of exams, finals. And um, again, in most areas, to some extent, young women are really scoring fantastically well, but they're not being offered the security of the next stage. Mm -hmm. And that's the most unfortunate thing. And it's being changed just by sheer performance. And we've got a number of women leading science in this country you've got evidence showing that the women are doing it Uh, what you've got to get fixed now is the support to be consistent over the next few decades because if you do science on and off and on and off you can't complete any major project 
you're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're joined today by a star in science journalism. My name is Anna Rabella and I'm with Ollie Dove along with our expert guest Robin Williams. So we introduced you as the founder of the Eureka Prizes. Uh, for our listeners who might not know what the Eureka Prizes are, we've heard them described as the Oscars of science <laughs> communication. Is How would you describe it? Well, they're a recognition of what goes on around the country in first-class different areas. There are lots of Eureka Prizes, and they are varied. We used to have one for science books, actually, uh, which I'm sad to say has lapsed, but you've got one for younger people, primary school and high school. Uh, you've got them for journalism, you've got them for scientific research, you've got them for innovation, and so it goes on. And we'll have more, but... It began when I was president of the Trust, the Australian Museum, which is the second oldest outfit in the country, the institution. They established the Australian Museum, and I was in the museum as a friend for a long time, but then I put on the Trust, and then I was made president uh, of the Trust, and lots of people from around the country said, we've had these prizes for this, that, and the other, and... uh, we're not getting so much in the way of attention and um, you know, we think it's important, but when we get in touch with the big cities, they say, no, but isn't it? we've got our prizes as well. What do we do? And so I said, look, we're thinking of establishing a prize for various things. Why don't we get those around the country whom you know and put them all together so that we've got a real cohesion and anyone who wins, be they Broome or Hobart or Launceston, anywhere in the country, in fact, the regions, that's really going to be a fantastic challenge. We will put them on a stage and judge which is the best according to various criteria, determined to some extent by the museums, to some extent by the sponsors, and that's what we did. And it's grown since then. There were five in the beginning, and I was insisting that one of them should be based on what was called the Faraday Prize in the Royal Society of London. And this was for the promotion of science by a person who was in science itself. In other words, this was not a bystander or a journalist. This was a person actually doing research and doing something that was extra to their commitment to make science well-known the ideas and the tradition, all sorts of things like that. And the first thing we found was that um, there was a queue of about 40 people who qualified (laughs) because there were so many who'd done such wonderful things. And over the years, what's happened is that if we look at the regions, and I'm not saying that Taz is a region, but if you look at places like Newcastle, Wollongong, maybe Geelong, certainly Fremantle and surround... These used to be smokestack regions. In other words, you had heavy industry, you had coal, you had lots of engineering going on, and there was necessarily got to be a big change happening. And there are some places like Newcastle, it's famous. They turned it round, BHP left, and they turned round to rather more vastly modern applications. I'll give you an example. There, coal was burned. You know, New- Newcastle, Hunter Valley... They dug it up (laughs) and absolutely dependent on it. And being dependent on something like that, that is clearly, if you look at it carefully, an industry that's about to die. So what you want to have is a turnaround in those regions. And the example I was thinking of, was a young fellow called Paul from Cambridge. I interviewed him 15 years ago and he said, what I want to do, you've got lots of um, things on your roof made of silicon 
and that's you know solar rooftop. I would like it so much more cheap and recyclable. And what I want to do is have a printing machine that turns it out like wallpaper by the kilometer. Lots of semiconductors, very cheap, and then you can have it on the w- roofs of warehouses because normally their roofs are too delicate. You can't put all those bloody silicon things on top there. And there's the, other, the other problem with silicon, of course, you've got to, when they wear out or break, you've got to recycle them somehow. And even though it's sand, more or less, it's a bit... bit but where you've got this paper stuff? And similarly, they've got perovskites, which is, you probably know, a, a substance that you can actually paint on windows and make them solar collectors or on the walls outside. And that's what they're doing in Newcastle. And he actually had the printing of kilometres of this material for solar, which last year he put on an e-bus, or sorry, an e-car, and he actually got a professional driver to go round schools to 70 schools around Australia to demonstrate how you could put out this, this wallpaper, charge the car and drive on and show the kids this is the future. (laughs) So what I'm saying is that uh, the Eureka Prizes are about recognising the work that is going on now, changing the landscape in a positive way, showing people, as a a colleague of mine who presents Quirks and Quarks in Canada, which is the sister programme, if you like, he wrote a book called Science, The Future is Now. Okay, the future is now. We've got the science that we need to turn things around, and that's our job as science communicators to show how it can be done. Absolutely, it really is. And I'm sad that we don't have longer with you because I feel like we could talk about science journalism, STEM communication yes, for days, not just hours. But unfortunately, we have reached the time limit. So thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you STEM-related content, and we really hope you enjoyed the show today. Now, it's just the first of four Eureka-themed episodes, so make sure you tune in because over the next three weeks, we're going to be hearing from three of the finalists from around the country, including our dear Tassie friends. So make sure you tune back in. And if you love the episode today, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to extend a huge thank you to my co-host Anna Vella and our expert guest today, Robin Williams. From us three, we hope you all have a wonderful week. Thank you. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. That's what I call science is brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find the show at all major podcast streaming services and find out more about us from our social media channels. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all the exciting science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine research in Lutruita, Tasmania. This show is supported and strengthened by Edge Radio, so head over to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. Thanks for tuning in today, and may your week be stemtastic. <laughs>